I'm Morgan. I'm Isabel. And this is Womance. A podcast about romance novels. About boats. About mistaken identities. About how shitty England is and all the people who live there. Sorry, uh, listeners. In England. <laughs> about big beds. About tacky cabin furnishings. About overprotective big brothers. About too many dads. About not swabbing the deck. About cross-dressing. About weird deceptions about control that are ultimately not about that. About legal ramifications for your actions and those who are able to circumvent them. About butts. (laughs) (laughs) So most of all, it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And ourselves. It's January. Listeners. Take a look at the calendar. Look at the date. It's Johanuary. Johanuary. And in this lioness field, we are taking a deep dive into Gentle Rogue. Number two or three? Three. In the, three in the Mallory series. Yeah, I'm pretty sure number three. Let's. let's uh, no, take, it is. It's number three in Love the Mallory Love Only series. Once, Tender Rebel preceded this. Mm-hmm. Shall I read the back of the book? Tell me what year this was published in. Oh, sure. 1990. Published by Avon in December 1990. Mm, almost 1991. I was born in 1991. <laughs> so I would say I was a twinkle in my parents' eyes, but I probably wasn't. I don't think I was planned. <laughs> Something in common that you have with <laughs> with, like, with the fetus. <laughs> oh, the, yeah, that for sure. But also the fetus in this novel. Oh, it's true. <laughs> you, me, and the unnamed fetus. All little surprises. We got it together. Not mistakes. No. Extra blessings. Surprises. Joys. Mom and dad have not confirmed this fact to me. I confronted them about it this past Christmas. How'd that go? elegantly evaded but Mm. I still do not feel satisfied that I was planned Mm. anyways what is planning what is planning all of John's siblings are planned and I don't think that's an added benefit in their lives (laughs) do you know who makes plans mice and men (laughs) yeah what were you doing in December 1990 I was oh my Oma had just died Cool. All right. Gentle Rose. You don't want to hear more about that? <laughs> she just returned from the Berlin Wall. Oma was in Germany. The wall had just fallen. Why uh, was she in Germany? Because she was a German immigrant in the 1930s. She came to the U.S. in she 1936. She wanted to see the Berlin Wall. She wanted to see her family. Oh, who were, they were on the other, other side. Oh. So she couldn't see them for oh my God. What a great years story. and years. Almost saw everybody. Uh, she had a great time. She hassled the Hoff. She got a piece of the brick wall, and uh, she had to catch a train to her flight. Got seven Danishes from the bakery right before it closed. Ran for the train. Had a minor heart attack on the train. Didn't know it. Got on the flight. Had a massive heart attack, and then went home. <laughs> and then she died. That's what I was doing yeah, in December nineteen ninety. Go! It's like fucking <laughs> running from the train to yeah. the plane with seven Danishes. <laughs> Seven Danishes from a Danish bakery that you haven't had since before the wall went up. That's pretty special. Oma fucking lit it up. And the thing that was in her suitcase when she came back was gifts for all of us. I had literally a little hosen. 
little wholesome, little wholesome for me. Oh. oh man, to Oma, Oma, and to those cheese Danishes. Mm. Worth it. Worth dying for. Oh man, I love that. Right. Thank you for sharing that story with me. It's my favorite Oma story. Um, what are we talking about? <laughs> <laughs> Gentle Rogue. All right, I'm gonna read the back of the book. Give you guys a quote unquote summary. Wah, 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 wah. <laughs> we'll see how well this 1990 Avon edition summarizes the actual text. Her heart trampled and torn. Innocent Georgina Anderson was desperate to return home to America. Mm. Leaving her sorrows on England's shores, she defiantly boarded the gentleman's ship, air quotes, Maiden Anne. Maiden Anne! Disguised. Disguised. As a cabin boy. Cabin boy. Never dreaming she'd be forced into intimate servitude to the irrepressible rake Captain James Mallory. Mm. A handsome ex-pirate. Mm. The black sheep of a proud and tempestuous family. Mallory swore no woman alive would entice him into matrimony. Wow. But on the high seas, he would be bested by a high-spirited beauty whose love of freedom and adventure mm. rivaled his own and by an inescapable tidal wave of passion mm. that threatened to engulf them both. Mm. Here we go. Joanna Lindsay, the phenomenal author of 20 national bestsellers, continues the amorous exploits of the Mallorys, the unforgettable family first introduced in Love Only Once and Tinder Rebel in a tantalizing tale of passion, conflict, and surrender. There's a surprising little amount of conflict in this book. <laughs> and surrender. And surrender. Strangely enough. All right. Where should we start? Where do you want to start? Where do we want to start? Well, first of all, I want to acknowledge Mallory series by far Joanna Lindsay's most popular and prolific series. The most recent book was published in 2017. So she kept this series going on a lot longer than all of the others that are featured in this podcast. Far and away her favorite. I am the fan's favorite, I think. Also, I get it. I get it. The sea is a liminal space. There's a lot you can do with a former pirate. There's a lot that you can do on either side of the Atlantic. There's a lot that you can do with the prejudice we that are. comes from Americans hating British people and British people thinking Americans are uncouth. But also like, thinking their general colonial attitudes, which somehow persist to this day. Maybe it's because they like hate. don't interrogate their racial biases. A hundred percent. I loved how much this book hated on English people. I felt it was really right. Oh, also did you fair. really love it? Not as because much as you did. I Loved it. <laughs> Every time I read something about the English are so fucking prideful and assholes and they don't interrogate themselves, I One was like, Morgan, details. Morgan, Morgan, <laughs> Morgan. That's all I was Morgan. thinking. The thing that like one of my favorite things she mentions is like he responded in that subtle way that says everything, but he thinks he's smart because he's not saying anything directly. And I was like, Yeah, yeah, fuck them, yeah, bitches, bitches. That drolly humor, drolly. I was like, I've never heard droll attributed an L-Y as an adverb in this way, but yeah. it seems like it could only be attributed to the British. Yeah. It's a... It's a thing. I'm going to tell my non-tip story. Has this already aired? I feel like so many times when I was in this job, I would tell this story about British people. We've only actually told it once, and it was when we were talking about and Alyssa hold on, Cole. Hold on, English people, because... Yeah, you told it on that one, tip your server. Yeah, tip your server. That was like over 70 episodes ago. More than once... You can rehash. <laughs> now is the time. More than once, 
More than once? Yes, more than once. Pretty consistently, in fact. Mm. English people would not only not tip, which... Why wouldn't they tip? Well, don't worry, Isabel, because they gave an explanation to the rest <laughs> of the people on the tour as to why they wouldn't tip. Fuck they just don't believe in it. It's not true in their country. Why don't they pay me a living wage? Uh, one of my favorite reactions was someone else handing me, another American handing me more cash and being like, if you don't want to do it, I guess I can tip for you. <laughs> <laughs> Take that, colonial father. And one of my favorite times was when a German person went back and tipped me again after an English person gave their little speech. At least four times that I can remember. The English feel very superior about the fact that we are a tipping culture. Yeah. Australians, tip. Yep. Germans, tip. Yep. Irish people, tip very little. Mm-hmm. Uh, Welsh people, tip. Scottish people tip generously. Norwegians also tip generously even when I was in Norway and I was like Although I, I will say in general Scandinavians act like they don't know what's going on. Because they don't. And they like, do. They're I mean, full of shit. Every guidebook says if you go to America, America you, you should tip. tip. Right. But like one of the nicest things about visiting a Scandinavian country was like I was leaving money on the table and she looked at me and she was like please don't do that. And I was like what? I just you but and she's like no. <laughs> And I was like, okay, I guess I'll take this for my $11 beer. Jesus, they overcharge for everything anyways. Well, they have a- <laughs> it's a joke. It's a joke. I know why. Prohibitive tax on alcohol because the sun but doesn't also, rise. They pay their people who serve at a living wage. Yeah, they totally they do that as well. On- no, they don't. All right. that said, this was a lot of English bashing, which was actually quite a bit of fun. Yeah, it is actually so super refreshing in a romance novel who as a rule romance novels tend to be like humping the pillow of (laughs) English (laughs) colonialism. It's like somebody was like Jane Austen's Hun in 1818 is the thing. And it's like, nobody looks good in an empire waist. I'm pure. I'm pure. <laughs> nobody looks good. Everybody hates the ton. You do if you have a belly and boobs. No, even then. It's like, maybe if you're pregnant and trying to hide it. Okay. But like, generally speaking, that's like a hard look to like carry off. Yeah. No, you're right. And so and then. I'm wrong, actually. And I'm like, and then dudes in fond britches get it. But also like, they spend four and a half months not at their homes not taking care of their like fucking manses like dancing and saying shitty things about women it's like I don't know 1818 Almac sounds like a fucking bore it sounds very hot and it sounds like I'm gonna get cholera (laughs) I'm just like I'm not here for it you're definitely gonna get syphilis they're not wearing their lamb sheaths Look, here's the thing. And actually, our friends Learning the Tropes pointed this out recently. There are not very many Irish romances. Do you know what that is? The potato famine. No. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Because shit like famine and oppression is such a boner killer in every other historical romance. Fucking forget it. Name an English famine, though. Well, this is happening during the famine and no one acknowledges it. On purpose. I think it's because people are into the colonial power and they don't want to acknowledge it. Everybody loves the metropole and nobody wants to say so. I know. It is like Ireland's such a beautiful country. Such a beautiful country. And people are musical voices. So musical. And like everybody like it's a drinking culture, but it's also like a melancholic culture. It's like cozy. Ugh. Fires burn. I'm going to be honest. I wasn't that horny when I was there. I was V horny when I was there and I went with my parents. (laughs) I think that says a lot about us. 
individuals. I was like, they're on my study abroad experience, and I was like, nothing. And you were like, hello. It was. I was like Christmas in Killarney with all the folks at home. You were courting one, two, three, as they say. It's true. I think they understood that I was too thirsty. I feel like in Ireland, my general American exuberance was understood as thirst. Yes. And I really wasn't. I'm sorry, guys, but you fucking wish. I think they understood my exuberance as both thirst, but like thirst in all of it. Thirsties, not just for like men, but also culture and warmth and like green. (laughs) Brandon called, he called Ireland Big Wisconsin. And then I was like, actually, Ireland's about the third of the size of Wisconsin, both in population and square footage. So it's small Wisconsin. Yeah, it's like Door County. Yeah, it's Door County. It's like all the best parts of Wisconsin with none of the weird stuff. That's not true. I mean, it's weird stuff is different weird stuff. Also, the Lutherans took over Wisconsin, not the Catholics. I bet there's some weird stuff that's similar. Sure. Hating women and having bad farms. (laughs) Can't farm in northern Wisconsin, you guys. Oh, shit. It's all Door sand. County. Don't add us, Door County. Okay, cherries and cranberries, but like, can you grow a fucking starch? I don't think so. Can you grow a fucking starch even? Door County, do you even starch? They do not. They're okay, a pinch. What are we talking about? Gentle Rogue. Gentle Rogue. Okay, what do you want to start with? I want to start with our heroine. Okay. Because one of the things that I actually really loved about this book is that it felt on its face like a comedy, like a Shakespearean comedy. Mm. Particularly Twelfth Night. Mm-hmm. So we have our heroine, Georgie, Georgina, and she's got her able-bodied man-at-arms, Ian McDonald, which is not... A.K.A. Un- Mac. A.K.A. Mac, which is not unlike how Twelfth Night starts. Who is like her papa. Yes. And, you know, they have this whole thing and she's like, she leaves America because she has to find her fiance who is press ganged into the fucking British Navy and it's like this whole thing. But During that, the revolution. Right. And that whole thing is over in five chapters. Yeah. And then they're like, we got to get home. And she's like, fuck England. Fuck the British. Everything sucks. My fiance has married another woman. He has two children. He never loved me. I hate him. We have to leave. So in case you forgot, during the Revolutionary War, British people would kidnap people who were born in America who they determined to be British and force them them. and force them to serve in the British army during the Revolutionary War. Also, the British performed this service for many years, including during the English and French wars up until really the 1850s. They stopped press ganging folks. But he was actually into it, it turns out. Yep. Prick. And married a uh, British British lady was very happy in a small English hamlet. Oh, our heroine, her main appeal at the time when she met her betrothed was that she's the heiress to a shipping family. Each of her brothers owns a ship. She owns a ship as well. The Amphorite. But she's not allowed to captain it. Her brothers do captain their ships. They sail all around the world with trade deals. Two of them are in China. When our book commences, one of them is sailing to Jamaica. They're rarely home in Connecticut. And so she's like, I gotta get out. I can't. I gotta get out. I gotta. I can't be on a British ship. And so Mac finds a ship that isn't technically British. He's like, we're going to have to work across. They don't take passengers. And she has previously pretended to be a boy in order to try and get information on where her fiance was at one of those dirty taverns and encountered 
The Mallory's. The Mallory's out cruising for a bruising for a Scotsman who was like the cousin of one of their wives who wanted to marry one of their wives, Anthony's wife. She meets James. He grabs uh, her by the tit. Grabs her by the tit. He doesn't know a tit's going to be there. And then he's like, ooh. Who did you picture as James Mallory? Great question. Hugh Grant. I did not picture Hugh Grant at all. I pictured more of like. He does that like. (laughs) He does say old boy and like. Sport or whatever that version of whatever sport is. I was envisioning more of a British Chris Evans, but not as nice. Well, he would be British Chris Evans covers the niceness. Yeah. The lack thereof. Exactly. Where he's like, he's incredibly hot, but also like, like a cunty Chris Evans. A, yeah. A cunty Chris Evans. That's what I was picturing where he's like, oh, it's a boom. Like a cross between... <laughs> Like, you know, like a more handsome Commodore Norrington from uh, the Pirates of the Caribbean. A cross between Hugh Grant and Chris Evans. Yeah. I think Hugh Grant is very cunty. Very cunty, but he doesn't have the upper body strength that I was envisioning. Brandon and I do this thing where we say, is it raining? I hadn't noticed in different ways to each other. <laughs> That's fucking adorable. One of my favorites that I came up with is, is it raining? <laughs> that's really good. That's fun to do. It's a fun game. That's a fun game. So. So. They have to work their way across the sea. They have to work their way across the sea. And so, like, as somebody who was deeply invested in the Helena Bonham Carter, Imogen Stubbs, Twelfth Night of 1994, the idea of a beautiful woman disguising herself as a cabin boy was immediately available to me as, like, a sexy, funny, and, like, this is, I think, the key thing, funny trope. And so, like, I never understood her to be in danger. I don't think the book ever understands her to be in danger because, as Morgan has so nicely alluded for us. James, the former pirate slash captain slash British asshole Chris Evans remembers her mm-hmm. from the tavern where he's like, that was a boy that had a tit and beautiful hair I never saw. I'm going to let this game play out for as long as possible of her pretending to be a boy in my cabin. I'm going to make her sleep in my cabin. I'm going to make her wash my ass. I'm going to make her eat my meals. And like, we'll see where this goes. And through this I will seduce her and through this I will seduce her which is like obviously the worst fucking plan in the like fucking world it's uh, like equations that has like da 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 question mark solution right and like fucking Mac her able-bodied man is the boatswain and it's just like all of this is hilarious and so like really and like she knows just enough about boat boats. life to be like really dangerous to herself right and he's <laughs> like you also know a lot about boat life for a 12 year old cabin boy who's supposed to know nothing hashtag boat life boat life so all of it just had this like real Shakespearean farceness to it because he was in on it his first mate Connie Conrad was in on it so then the only person who wasn't in on it was our heroine herself. But that also becomes part of the joke because she gets nauseous the first time that they share a meal together. And then for the next week and a half, she has these feelings in her stomach and she's like, this is nausea. Yeah. And it's not nausea, it's sexual attraction. It's yeah. the butterflies that you get when you're around the person that you the want to bone the most. First time I really and truly liked a boy, I did not eat for two weeks. Yeah. You get or so like skinny. Like whenever you first meet somebody who you really like, like yeah. you have this like a 
adrenaline rush. And this book did such a good job of describing it without being like beating you over the head with it. Right. That it felt like it could be indeed a nausea, but like we knew that it wasn't. And so like in that moment, I was like, oh shit, this is what a romantical farce is. Mm-hmm. And because he is also overwhelmed by his attraction for her in all of the ways. popping boners, very worried that she's going to think he's attracted to boys because right. of it. Right. Which is like exactly what happens in Twelfth Night. You know, when he's like, you're a boy. I'm mad that you're so beautiful. Get away from me, boy. <laughs> Slash he, be around me, boy. But he knows that she's a girl. And I wouldn't argue that Counter Sino in Twelfth Night knows, but whatever. That's well, like that a whole other thing. The point of the game. That rule. You need to watch the Helena Bonham Carter version. Anyway. And yes, it's like really funny. Is it open to interpretation? I feel like Twelfth Night doesn't work if he doesn't actually think she's a boy and thinks he's falling in love with a boy. That's part of its humor. That he knows it's a woman? No, that like he thinks it's a boy and he's like, well, this is Well, in this book, it's different because he knows she's a woman. And he's like worried that she's like, oh shit, she's going to think that I'm attracted to young boys. She's going to think I'm hard over a boy. And then he's also worried about the crew thinking that he's attracted to young boys and so like this book is actually very invested in like who you are supposed to be attracted to and like how you rationalize that yeah and so he's like how do I make her safe because he has never seen her not disguised as a boy until the moment she takes off her cap and they have sex yeah exactly so you tell me was he attracted to a woman or a 12 year old boy yeah think about it binders she gets away with a lot of stuff because she's knowledgeable about ships just because of her family legacy but also she grew up with how many brothers? Five. Five brothers who oftentimes were crass around her. Talked about things like sex so it is that repeating Joanna Lindsay trope of the heroine who's like just a little bit more carnally knowledgeable however is unable to apply that knowledge to herself and I love recognize you, what's happening to I love that you refer to it as carnally knowledgeable but not like applicable. Yeah, it's yeah like, exactly it's knowledgeable but it's not applicable it's like the theory and not the practice. Exactly. She's like, she like fucking understands, but she 100% doesn't get it. So like when she finally, she's like, sir, captain, I can't be in this kind of close proximity to you. You actually make me sick. Because like, you keep walking around like Zap Brannigan <laughs> in your short little silk robe. I love that it's an emerald silk robe. <laughs> Very <laughs> short, barely covers his it's balls. It's a Victoria's Secret Christmas robe <laughs> that you got in a package <laughs> with like a fucking perfume and a yeah, that's exactly. what he was wearing. That's what he's wearing. And he's like, and he fucking knows it. And so she's and like, just like strutting, strutting all the time. And she's like in her little hand, like across it, but the I'm room. Doing a good impression. <laughs> you're doing an amazing impression. That's what you're doing. One of the things that's actually different about this Johanna Lindsay novel than others is that she's talking to her specific conscience, which feels like she's talking to the reader mm-hmm. where she's like, you ninny, don't look at his rippling pectorals <laughs> and his amazing V and the hair that goes down to his it's obviously short but it's like <laughs> it's not it's very well proportioned I don't I won't even talk about it and then she's like conscience you should feel bad and conscience yeah. is like I don't she's speaking to her inner goddess <laughs> it is it's so fun it's These two so funny idiots who are otherwise like completely capable like very cool customers competent 
Yeah, but also I think just like cool. cool. Yeah. Like they're both very cool people and then they get around each other and they're idiots. They're idiots. And like, that's great. Watching it's him so wander fun. around in his emerald short robe was fucking hilarious. Or like there's a scene where he's like, oh, you're going to bathe me. And she's like washing his back and she's like, okay. Like she gets over it. She feels nauseous, but she's like, all right, I can do this. I can nauseous. power through. And then he realizes that he's fully erect and he can't get out of the tub. Very funny. So funny. And he puts his like actual head on his knees and he's like, you can go. <laughs> you can leave now. <laughs> she's like, okay, okay cool. Cool. I did it. Oh, I'm really phew. sorry that your low back was so tight. I don't know what happened there. And that's like why this book feels both like a very hilarious farce, but also in other ways, I was like, what the fuck is this book? I know it is one of those wonderful. What the fuck is me, this book though? This book felt like a really fun because it wobbled on the side of fun, but definitely in the middle ground of Joanna Lindsay's works, which yes. can be, I mean, problematic feels generous sometimes can be challenging very challenging challenging to the point where it's difficult for someone in my context to enjoy the book indeed or it can be just like one of the best romance novels one of the best novels I've ever read and that's the thing with Joanna Lizzie is like you fucking never know you're like on a fucking knife's edge but this book for me did a really good job of like teetering on either side because the problematic stuff was like understood as problematic it still happened but it was like a joke so they fall in love they start having sex they get to Jamaica wait we have to go back to the moment that they have sex though I want to give like a quick outline of what happened. Okay, give the quick outline, but then we have to go back to that original sex scene. So yeah, we'll okay. get to the sex scenes. Okay. So she gets to Jamaica. She chose Jamaica as one of her destinations because she knew her brothers have a port there so she could jump on one of their boats and go back to America. Connecticut. In America, yeah. Mm-hmm. The United States of America. I want to say it's like Connecticut because like slavery is not dealt with it and even though this would have been a thing in the time. Yeah, and also Connecticut still sucks. So, <laughs> so they dock, they're immediately docked next to one of her brother's boats. So she just hops on and he's like, oh my God, we're leaving now. So she doesn't say goodbye to him or anything. She doesn't say goodbye to James. He was planning on wooing her and asking her formally to be his mistress. And he was like, she's super into me. This is going to happen. So he's enraged, follows her to Connecticut. However, his previous piracy career makes it a very sticky wicket for him to be in America because Americans hate the Brits anyways and will not like let him go just because he's a lord. And he fucking pirated her brother's ship. Two of her brother's ships. So they like surreptitiously go. And then he just like flips shit, shows up at her brother's ball and just like, oh, well, you got you're so fucking horned. What's your deal? Like, loses. you were my cabin boy. Yeah. Like, just does not keep his cool as soon as he sees her. He's a real asshole. In her womanly form. But it, to like a funny extent, because there's no way like a capable cool cucumber and like we get his internality that he's like I'm gonna freak her out I'm not even gonna fucking talk to her I'm not even gonna she's gotta oh oh she's so great in her you are my cabin boy and I'm gonna say it in front of your fucking asshole brothers that was terrible so funny I was so upset and then her brother and then he's like 
oh, I'll take all of you. And then it turns out there's five of them. He gets clobbered. And then they are forced into a marriage. They're going to hang him because he's a pirate. And she tries to let him go. And he gags her and then takes her back to England. And her brother's like, heave ho, back to England to rescue her. It's like there's a lot of actual abduction and rescue in this book. There's a point at which you're like, oh, my God, she's on another boat. Her brothers have re-kidnapped her. And then they're like, we're not leaving port. And I was like, thank fucking Christ. And I was like, like, that's actually very funny. That feels like Joanna Lindsay is self-aware. Because Kathleen Woodowis would have put us on that boat 18 times. Oh, yeah. And she would have sent us to, like, fucking Japan. You know, she would have been like, let's circumnavigate the globe, friends. You did the Atlantic. How's the Pacific? Yeah. I think Joanna Lindsay does, like, a little bit of a meta joke there in that final movement. Yeah, this actually felt sort of like a denouement or, like, a punchline of a pirate's It was definitely a punchline. I think it was, like, self-aware to the point of, like, swashbuckling romances are over the top with their boat kidnappings. I've just done four. Here's a fifth one. LOL, JK. They're not leaving port. Yeah. I thought it was good. I thought it was effective. I thought so, too. There were a lot of moments where this was, like, extremely effective, but it was also weird to read, like, a Johanna Lindsay that was nakedly farcical. Yeah, or, you know, even the farce continues when he takes her home. She's still dressed like a boy. Everyone assumes she's his mistress, and she's like, I don't have to owe you any explanation, and her husband's like, yeah. And she's like, what? No, you have to, you have to explain. I'm your wife. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty fun. It's actually maybe one of the funniest books I've read as a romance novel. Yeah. You want to talk about the sex scenes? I do. I do. As character building? I do want to talk about the first sex scene as character building. Well, maybe we start there and we see where it goes. That's a really good point. So the first sex scene, she, as still the cabin boy, she's fully immersed in her own lie. And she's like, (laughs) it's definitely his cologne that's making me sick. It's not anything else. And so she confesses to him, to James, I feel sick around you, but it's not your cologne. I don't know what it is. Because she caught, he caught her smelling his neck and he was like, what the fuck are you Finally. doing? Finally. <laughs> and he's like, you feel sick around me, but haven't vomited. What kind of sick do you feel? And like she goes into it and it's like butterflies in her tummy and feeling faint. And he's like, you feel sick around me and he starts laughing and he's like you'll get over it and she's like I mean I guess I he's haven't like, thus far but like the for you right here. exactly and he's like it'll be revealed to you in time so she like gets into her hammock and then like later that night he's like hey boy you sleeping and she's like no and he's like great read to me and she's like I guess and he's like read to me over here don't read to me in your hammock and she's like okay this is and the first night this is what this he's is trying to seduce her number one I mean he's been trying to just the, the for a week. cologne and the like her feeling sick and telling him about it happens this after is, a week. The first night is when he asks her to read to him. Right. That's the first night they have sex. No, no. The first night on the boat is when he asks her to read to him. Right. That doesn't happen. He says it's a possibility, but she doesn't read to him until the eighth night. I literally read this last night. And so he's like, get the slim novel out of my like Kiriko or whatever. Oh, the erotica. Yeah. And she starts reading it and it's breasts and she's like, what is this? And he's like, it's erotica. And she's like fuck you and he's like no it's all right I have a headache like rub my temples and then she like rubs his temples and then she like rubs his cheeks and then they like start kissing and then like this is the thing that is like insane about this book and like something that I'm going to return to for a long time so she's 
rubbing his temples because he is like apparently has this headache and then she finds herself cupping his cheeks and staring into his eyes piercing eyes hot green mesmerizing green and then it happened lips to lips his to hers and she still thinks that she's a boy in the scene opening flaming hot she was sucked into the vortex sinking a whirlpool of sensation taking her deeper and deeper how much time passed she'd never know but gradually Georgiana became aware of what was happening James Mallory was kissing her with all the passion a man could put into a kiss and she was kissing him back as if her very life depended on it it felt as if it did but it felt right her nausea had returned worse than ever before but it felt wonderful now and right too right question mark no something wasn't right he was kissing her no he was kissing Georgie (laughs) she was hot then cold with shock she pushed away from him frantically but he held her fast she only managed to break the kiss but that was enough captain stop are you mad let me shut up you darling girl I can't play this game anymore what game you're mad no wait right and so like that's where they begin to have actual sex and like there's so many questions in the internality of this it's like a triple cross that kind of gets out of hand and it's really fun but what is the growth you think through the characters in the sex scenes so the first sex scene I think is actually really powerful in that a lot of internal conversation is happening on Georgina's side first of all she's like having her sexual awakening and then second it's this whole double cross thing and then she says captain she got out between kisses you're making love to me oh yes my darling girl do you really think you should absolutely it's the cure after all for what's been ailing you you can't be serious but I am your nausea dear girl has nothing more than a healthy desire for me she wanted him are you referring to the fact that she kind of conscientiously decides her engagement has failed she's probably never going to have this opportunity again she doesn't want to die like a true old maid she wants to experience sexual pleasure and so she gives herself over to this moment but like that's not the thing that she's thinking in the moment that she's like having sex with him she's not thinking about being an old maid she's not thinking about any of that she has this like very weird italics moment with herself where she's like this is for you conscience and then she says no I don't want it and he's like are you sure and then she has another italics moment and she's like I do want it this is my body responding this is something I want for myself right and then the conscience is silenced it's such a departure from a pirate's love or even other very early Johanna Lindsay's where it's like here's a thing where like you could potentially call it assault you could potentially call it something else and like she has coercion coercion she has that conversation with herself and she's like no I want this the internality of the heroine allows us to enjoy it because we understand her as actually wanting it and making a clear and conscious decision right where there's one moment where she's like wait stop and he's like do you want me to and then she says no and he's like thank god and I was like this book was written in 1990 yeah that's their first sex scene the other reason why I want to bring up this first sex scene is because after they have sex there's this thing where he says something shitty to her and not very not anymore I'd say I've been adequately compensated for all embarrassments in fact you've just paid your passage and anything else you'd like and he says it to her like it's sexy and she takes it like fuck you Englishman arrogant 
bastard lord. A wench? Which says plain enough how lowly he thinks of you. She sat up and she's like, fuck you. I'm going to sit in my own bed. And the thing that really struck out to me about this passage is that his comment hurt. The crack about having paid for her passage. This is a book that deals very funny in all of the ways in which people talk to each other and like try to like deceive one another and like move through ways. But this is also a book that is like deeply invested in the idea that sometimes jokes have teeth and those teeth make bleeds. Those teeth make bleeds. Yeah, they're cutting. (laughs) Those teeth make bleeds. Those teeth make bleeds. Those teeth make bleeds. They're cutting. That joke has teeth, and that didn't feel good. The second recording of the day, we've reached those teeth make bleeds. Those teeth make bleeds. What's really striking to me, as I look back on my notes on Gentle Rogue and, and the experience of reading it, is how meta the book feels, how aware it is and how the jokes really work only if you're aware of the romance genre Mm -hmm. like that final boat thing feels like a punchline like you said but only if you know that like other books would it would be another boat napping and also stuff about like railing against the English and their imperialism talking about this slick competent suave guy just like putting his head on his knees because he can't get out of the tub because he's fully erect acting like a goober in his short silk robe so much of this almost feels like satire and yet is still working. It's just so meta and so aware. It talks about like the way his boat cabin is decorated by a previous lover and at it talks... Length. Yeah, at length. But I think it's because it's describing something that like otherwise in another book would be like the sumptuous surroundings. And this book is like the over the top make no sense at all. Where are the references coming from? Why is this this way? Space. Yeah. And I think the internet of her thinking of like she's being taken by a pirate but we know because they're doing this little extra step of communicating which feels really progressive for the time it was published but also feels like kind of part of the joke almost right this isn't the same romance novel you read 10 years ago no this this is not a pirate's love although this is that romance it's not that romance you know what I mean yeah it just feels so meta and so self-aware like the plucky heroine to the point of of dressing up like a cabin boy feels and like Georgie particular. isn't enough of a masculine term he like insists on calling her George yeah so one of the things that's most interesting about it is it feels like a real critique of romance as romance is happening it does like if this book had had two overpowering brothers right that would have been one thing but the fact that she has five brothers that each represent a different facet of brotherness feels like a joke and also and he has the same correlation mirror image of brothers. Exactly, exactly. It's a little over the top. Like we've got Warren who's overprotective. And hates women. We've got Clinton who's the stoic oldest one. Thomas who's described as like the logical one who will see reason. Drew who's affectionate. And then Boyd who's just a little baby. A little baby, a puppy. Yeah, Drew is also a rake. Just like like the man she marries. You know what I mean? Like there's so much of it that if that was one character I would be like this is more earnest. But the the fact that it's five characters who each just have one personality trait amongst them creates for me this sense of like this is a real comment on character. I would 100% agree. Type and so in like romance. The moments where this book feels entirely earnest is where like the joke 
ends. And so like that's like the moment where he says like your passage is paid because that was super fun. And she's like, no, that doesn't make me feel good. That also feels like a comment, though. (laughs) Right. It's still it's always commenting on itself whenever he like puts on his earring and has his billowy shirt. Totally. And And you're like like, piratical. She describes him as piratical and she's like, you look goofy as fuck. And And then she starts to like it over the course of the passage. I'm like, yeah, Yeah. like it just feels like it's a romance novel about romance novels. It feels that way. And I would say that like it's successful in that critique, but it's also like the moments that I was most engaged and most surprised by were the moments where it's like that farce fell away for a moment. And then she's like, no, I didn't like that. Yeah. And like that joke didn't But carry. that's still a comment on romance. Right. And I think like that sometimes people who love you say things that hurt you, but they didn't mean it to hurt you. And like, I think that's like one of the ways in which this feels like a really intelligent novel where it's like he honestly said that as like a way of being like a fucking rake hell and a joke where he's like, we just had a fucking super fun time together. Well, he means it genuinely because it's worked for him in the past. Right. And I think like that's one of those moments where it's like you have someone who's been acculturated to like say a thing or like knows a very particular kind of person and so like says the thing that's always worked for them and then doesn't work for them. They're like, but but I didn't mean it like that. But that gets into my weirdest part. Sure. So this book feels to me in so many ways as I was reading it, I was having a lot of fun with it. It also felt like, like I said, it feels like very meta. It feels like commentary on the genre itself. But there are parts where he's like an idiot. Like he's mean. Yes. And he's callous. Yes. And he's still not self-aware of it. No. And he blames her for having a bad reaction to it. And she starts to blame herself. And she makes the conscious decision that even if he doesn't love her, she'll love enough for both of them. Yep. And that felt earnest in a way that was painful. And it felt earnest in a way that like up until that point, we were just having fun. And now we're not having fun anymore. And now we're not having fun anymore. That was the hinge that was chosen was pretty upsetting. I mean, not upsetting, but just like was the weirdest part for me. Really took the wind out of my sails, as it were. (laughs) No, I mean, I totally agree. What's your weirdest part? It's the fact that he gets away without a mea culpa. He embarrasses her in her house with her brothers. Yeah. Says terrible things about her, ruins her reputation Mm -hmm. and still doesn't say, I want to marry you. I want you for my own. Yeah. And like allows this whole thing to be forced and then still like abducts her and absconds with her back to England and still won't say those things. And then at the end, he's like, oh, I like did it on purpose because I just done that to my niece's husband. And I figured if it was good enough for him, it was good enough for her. And it's like, but it's missing that important part. Right. The where turn, you share your feelings. Right. <laughs> the turn where the hero says the thing that needs to be said and the heroine then gets to like be validated in her vulnerability. And like the fact that that never happened is like a really fucking weird part because is like the thing that then happens is that this heroine is most vulnerable with her brothers mm-hmm. and not her sexual intimate partner. Mm-hmm. And like that, to be totally honest, like didn't feel like unearned for her to be like, I love him. This is my choice. I'm like a fully fledged human being. And like, you yeah. don't get to blame me for the mistakes of others. Like I make my choice. I choose mm-hmm. my choice. And for her to say that to her shitty brother, Warren, who's like a one dimensional asshole. Cool. But like, that's the thing that the 
hero then overhears it like you love me and it's like you know though then like we haven't done the work and like he has this moment where his brother says I love you to him mm-hmm. and he still doesn't say it back and that's played for laughs but in light of the exchange that happened earlier it was like oh he's a he's just kind of a bastard like he thinks this is cool like it's crazy the hero did not make the right moves in the final act to ultimately make himself likable yes and then like the book was like ha 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 that's what the British do but also I don't think it was like that's what the British do I think it was like this is a hero at all times just so masculine so in control of his own feelings so in control of the game and still doesn't give you anything. Yeah. Like wins everything, gives you nothing. And yeah. like we talk about this, but I think Joanna Lindsay, she is aware of that bad feeling. And given how meta the rest of the book is, I wouldn't be surprised if she didn't feel like a certain amount of bitterness towards James Mallory and the heroic archetype she had previously written. It almost feels like a working through of those older characters, those older heroes. And there is something in like what James Mallory does that's like, this is what you want. But also in, this like, is what you asked for. This is what you like. This is what you buy. This is what you like and this is what you buy. But like one of the things that was like also then like a meta commentary was like, so he's 36, our heroine's 22. That's not like odd for the era or even the genre. (laughs) Or even the genre. Or the genre. Or the genre. And so then she says this like kind of like cutting thing about his age and the fact destroys him. Destroys him for chapters. Oh, till the end of the book he's bringing it up. Yeah. And like he brings up how young she is and he's like, she's only four years older than his natural born bastard son. Yeah. And it's like the fuck we're not dealing with this. And the fact that like Johanna Lindsay is like brings up his frailty in this very, very yeah. specific way. But they are dealing with it in that it like it motivates tears him asunder. Totally. Like fucks him up. Real bad. He does not let go of it. The end of the novel, he's still talking about it, not forgiving her for making this one jibe. And to me, I'm like, that's further proof that this is like, yeah, this is the hero you like. This is what you like. Here it is. But also like, you're okay with a 36 year old marrying a 22 year old. Yeah. But like, honest to God, this is the way that he would react to that 22 year old. Well, it's like, like, hey, old man. This is the thing. This is the thing. Okay, boomer. Yeah. Well, but not so much. Okay, boomer. I think it is like, yeah, he's an asshole. But I think more than that, it's the fact that it's never resolved between Mm -hmm. them. The fact that it continues to be this gnawing thing in the back of his mind. Our hero can't let it go feels like it's an indictment. Yes. And being like, yeah, no, this is it. I think it's speaking to the reader so much. Yes. Of like, this is what it is. This is what these people are like. This is the hero you like. This is the hero you buy. Frailty. This, Thy like, name is hero. This, But also just too old. Point in fact, the type of man who is too frail to be with one of his peers. This is what you like. This is what you buy. I don't know if this was a conscious choice on her part, but as someone who has been in her books for like five weeks, weeks and like how funny and sharp so much of it was. This is the sharpest Johanna Lindsay I've read. The stuff that like feels like a dull thud. Like her craft is too good for me to think that. Certainly at this point. It's not intentional. No, I agree. I think. And doesn't super love the hero herself. 
I think he's like, since the Mallory's and the Anderson's are her longest running series, there's clearly an affection here for frailty. In the sense that like, this is ground that she continually returns to and most of the characters that we've all been introduced to in this novel have very similar frailties of pride and like uncommunicativeness and like mm-hmm, like mm-hmm, the broken mm-hmm. way in which like both the Andersons and the Mallory's operate. Yeah. But also all of her romantic heroes. Sure. Can you think of one that's not functioning on that level of like prideful, uncommunicative? I would say until forever, the Viking hero is actually much more communicative. Yeah, yeah but he's still very prideful. Yeah. And is in fact cursed for the fact that he can't communicate. Indeed. Pride is definitely the primary masculine sin. He is literally cursed for the fact that he does not express his feelings. Right. And then like <laughs> the curse is lifted because he learns how. And I think the fact that this novel never ameliorates the pride and like the kind of way in which until forever or even define at the heart wherein like a hero understands that humbling oneself isn't like a forsaking of pride. Yeah. It's like the thing that happens in the growth after. Yeah. yeah. And that this hero doesn't learn that lesson. Yeah. Feels like a weird sort of failure. But also we constantly hear the heroine settling for that. Right. And like it's not just that it doesn't happen. It's that she's like, okay, this is what's going to be. This is how we got to make it work. I got to try to find a way to make it work. But but I will say that there were moments that I was like genuinely surprised. Like she goes to the docks to find her brothers after she's been abducted for the like upteenth time is almost abducted by her nephews and stepson. <laughs> and like there's this moment where like her stepson is holding on to her in the foyer and she's like, he's just going to like fucking like throw me to James and like make me feel like an asshole and humiliate me and then like he still has hold of her and then puts her behind him Uh as like a weird sort of like I'm gonna protect you from dad even like I brought you home yeah and so like there are ways in which like masculine pride are operating in this novel that feel like contradictory to itself but also really complementary yeah because like you're like oh wow he's standing up to his father he's such a good guy but then it's like why did he take her back why didn't he help her find her brothers right because like all of this is paying fealty to like this yeah. other patriarchal bad thing. Yeah, exactly. It's a joke until it's not. Yeah. And so it's like in that way, it like feels sort of like Twelfth Night unfulfilled. Yeah, I think you're right. I think the thing about this book is it's such a pleasure. It's fun to read, but it is truly like a joke until it's not. So what was your sexiest part? Honestly, that first sex scene uh-huh. where like, you know, he takes off her hat and he's like, darling girl, like I can't play this game anymore. And she's like, wait, wait, what? Like, what? And then like they have this like incredible sex scene and like you know there's like this whole whatever maidenhead and then she's like wait stop and he does and I love that especially for a Johanna Lindsay which I was actually kind of surprised <laughs> by and then he's like do you really want to stop and she like has this wrestle with conscience and she says no and then he says thank god and then they have like a mutually sexually satisfying experience and I was like the conversations inside the sex scenes I found incredibly sexy I really appreciated the fact that there is a conscious shift of like do I want this? Why do I want this? Am I okay with why I want this? Yes, I am. I'm moving forward. Like it really alleviates the issue of coercion because she really thinks it through and is given, you know, time and space and whatever to think it through. And the novel shows like the actual like steps to reach that decision, which yeah, is surprising for compared to some of the stuff we've read in the past by Joanna Lindsay. I would say my sexiest part is the bathing, (laughs) the first bathing scene where she's washing his back and 
the moaning and just like the caginess between the two of them, the cloak and dagger act. Oh my God. Another instance of how meta this book is, is the erotica passage that she reads to him, which actually sounds like a romance novel. A romance novel. Can I read it? Please. Okay. She found the page, cleared her throat and began to read. There was nary a doubt that I had ever seen such big ones. (laughs) Round and ripe. My teeth ached to bite them. God, what tripe. This would have them both asleep in minutes. I pinched one and heard her gasp of delight. The other beckoned my mouth, which was panting to oblige. Oh, heaven. Oh, sweet bliss. The taste of those succulent breasts. Georgia slammed the book closed. It's true. It's like, so true. She's like, God, this is boring. Like, it's just those funny moments. Whenever Joanna Lindsay takes like your classic seduction scene, I think about Awaken My Love, which is after this, but there's that scene of him like introducing her to erotica and she's like, oh, I'm so tantalized. And Joanna Lindsay kind of turning that on its ear. Or that also happened in, in some chic novels that mm-hmm. we read. Or the, oh, you're going to bathe me and like I'm in control of my body and I'm like the ultimate love machine and then he's just immediately like middle school someone said orgasms of organism and now he can't stand up at the front of the class like that was so titillating and fun Mm -hmm. like it was fun I don't know which came first the titillation or the fun for me those were like just very sexy aspects of the novel the sex scenes are great like I said the internality really relieves a lot of the stress of reading a Joanna Lindsay which is something I bring to the table every time I encounter a first sex scene in her book and just allowed for everything else thereafter to be really fun. Hated the secret baby. Go figure. But I I do. I think like one of the things that I found especially enjoyable about this book was the meta-ness, the sense of humor, the whimsy (laughs) that came into these sex scenes in a way that hasn't in her past books. I totally agree. I totally agree. This book is having a lot of fun with itself. Mm -hmm. And I immediately bought Warren's book, which is the next book in the Mallory series. Oh, I bought the first two and then Warren. (laughs) So like one clicked that shit. One of the things that I do want to bring up. I'm not sure if it's my weirdest part, but I would say it's like one of my grossly relatable where it's like, first of all, I think the silent treatment is a really shitty way to deal with people. It's not a good way. It's also boring to read about. It's boring to read about. It's not an adult way to handle conflict, but like (laughs) the way in which this author handled seven days of fucking silence on the sea and then ended with this like epic sex scene. I was like, is it that the sulking of silence is actually just this? Like the precipice of sexy? I was like, I have to interrogate the feelings that I have about the silent treatment and like what it means to sulk because like she was like really coaxed out of this like really quickly and I was like, she was like muled up to her heaviness and it's like what? I was like, I was deeply embedded in her like giving him the silent treatment for seven days. And then I was like over and I was like, is this over? One of my favorite scenes that I also want to bring up. So she's pretending to be a boy. She has to use the facilities. He leaves the room. So she like sits down on the chamber pot. He walks in on her peeing. She's immediately embarrassed that he's walked in on her peeing. But more than that, she's afraid that he knows she's peeing. He realizes he's watching her peeing, realizes that she's sitting down and is like, I have to act like I think she's pooping <laughs> because her pants are down and I'm attracted. And also he gets very horned up. Horned walking up. Walking in on her sitting on the chamber pot. Yep. The levels of comedy there are so funny. It's like she's not thinking like, oh, I should be standing up if I'm being. He thinks I'm pooping. She's immediately like, the jig is up. And then he's like, I've embarrassed her. I've I embarrassed have to figure her, this out. Also, her pants she, are I, down. I can't let her know that I know. So I have to be like pooping like the rest of <laughs> us, eh, pal? 
like was that scene was so silly but also he's very but i don't know why she had to make him get a boner from it i mean whatever her pants were down that's how men i guess are. that's how it works any of our male listeners let us know you walk in on a woman peeing are you immediately horned up because pants are down what do you feel what's the path of least resistance what's your minimum what's the vibe horned up is it pants down any context like what are we what are we talking what are we talking here all right romance or no man it's a woe-mance. It's a woe-mance. I 100% think people should read this because it's funny. And like, this is the thing where it's And it's like, enjoyable. And like, even if you don't think about it in the way that I think you and I were thinking about it, because we... Morgan, I'm going to confess this to you. I read this book in seven and a half hours. I started reading it at like nine o'clock at night. And I was <laughs> done at four o'clock in the morning. And I was like both upset with myself and also deeply wanted to masturbate. And it's like... <laughs> but like, the thing was like, I had so much fun. I had so much good feeling about like... I love these characters. Like, I, I love them. They're book. so funny. James is not my favorite, but I love love Georgie. I love everybody. I'm like, these are my friends. Anthony's my friend. Anthony's my friend. And like Rosalind, Regan. We're going to figure this out. And it was like also that it was like Twelfth Night on a ship. And I'm like, Twelfth Night is like one of my favorite plays. And it's like, all of this is so fun. And then it's like, and then he never did the Mia Culpa. Yeah. And he never did the thing that a hero is supposed to do. But to be honest, like, I think Joanna Linsky's right. I think she's like, bang, bang. This is what you came for. It sucks that he's just an asshole through and through. But that's what turns you on. Quit buying the books if you don't like it. Like, fair enough. I also want to point out another weird part before we go. Mm-hmm. The fact that the minute our heroine meets another Scottish person in servitude, she's like, you should be with the Scottish guy in my employ. The help should be with the help. Yeah. I thought that was annoying. Also, after all of the amazing work that Define Not the Heart did with like naked capitalism. But I want to say, Womance. Well, Womance. Well, I get why the Mallorys are so popular. I this do is too. like I had so much fun. I laughed out loud. Laughed out loud. I had so much fun reading it and like I'm not mad at the fact that the stuff that fell flat fell flat because it really clarified shit for me mm-hmm. and still felt like interesting and riveting and I think like Isabeau said you can have a good time just taking this like as an earnest romance read mm-hmm. it's still super fun I will say that this was the most earnest spanking slash butt play oh. in a Johanna Lindsay novel and I was like very titillated there's like this scene yeah. where he's like up in her butt yeah. and then he's like now I'm gonna turn you over and I'm like I don't know how long we spent here but I was uh, into I, but it. But I was here for days. Yeah. I just got my t-shirt. Yeah. I have started saying aloha as hello and goodbye. That's how long I've been here in this butt stuff. Exactly and I was like this is the It first. was great. It was a great spanking scene. It was the only spanking scene from Johanna Lindsay where I was like I don't feel both uncomfortable and shamed and gross. Because he like went into it as like this mm-hmm. is a horny thing. Yeah. Not like. I'm not gonna humiliate you. Yeah it was human Humiliation wasn't the central tenant of this banking scene. Also, there was so much butt kissing and he's just like so into her butt. He's like into her butt from the beginning. Talks about her butt all All the the time and her little britches. Her little derriere. Her derriere, that's the word they use. It is. He loves her little derriere. Her intriguing derriere. I love the idea that my butt is intriguing. (laughs) It also describes things as spanking new. Joanna Lindsay's got a thing. She does. We love you. Dearly departed. Oh, and it talks about her brothers. They argue over whether or not Clinton spanked her. Yeah. Spanking. Spanking is weird again. Keep spanking weird. All right. With that, 
losing your stays. Never your principles. Mwah. Whoa, golly gee. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. Womance is hosted by Isabel. That's me. And Morgan, that's me. Production is by Nick Gravelin. Our webmistress is the incomparable Jane Bonzak. And our illustration and logo were created by Mary Reichman. They're the best. If you'd like to follow, creep, or connect with us on our social media platforms, you can find us at mans underscore woe on Twitter, womance on Instagram, or email at womancemail at gmail.com. You can also hang out on our amazing website at womanspodcast.com. You can support us by using our code to visit our sponsors or go to our Patreon where we are Womance. Womance is officially part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Discover more podcasts just like our own centering on romance and reading at frolic.media slash podcast. Until next week. Mwah. <laughs>